Turn with me to Romans chapter 6. We'll actually back up a couple of verses and take a running start, but if you turn to Romans 6, you'll be locked, you'll be loaded, you'll be ready to go. But has Bibles, if you need a Bible, wave at him, get his attention, he'll hook you up. Romans chapter 6. I had a conversation with someone not long ago. Someone I used to go to church with, someone I used to be in ministry with, actually, not here, somewhere else. Someone who would describe himself not just as a believer, but as a Christ follower. And we know the difference, right? <clears throat> so I asked him, this friend of mine, how does this part of your life over here reconcile with that part of your life over there? How does this choice you're consistently making reconcile with your faith in Jesus Christ? His first answer was, well, I don't think the Bible talks about that. I told him where I thought that it did, and we went back and forth like that for a while. As the conversation continued, his second answer he, he pivoted, and he said, well, but, but, but people disagree about that. <clears throat> and I admitted that was true, because it is. But then I went back to my point. Yeah, people disagree, but the Bible disagrees with people. The Bible disagrees with you on this particular issue that you've invested your life in. And then his third answer, his third answer to me was the most interesting. His third answer, when I continued to push him on how he could reconcile his perspective with the Bible's perspective, he finally shrugged and said, well, I guess that God is going to have to get a whole lot of glory for giving a filthy sinner like me. Now, he didn't necessarily believe that. I think he said it mostly to shut me up. But it was interesting that he recognized that was the only place left for him to go. Ever encounter someone like that? Someone in your life who calls themselves a Christian, believes in Jesus, goes to church, maybe goes to church here, but there's still something in their life, consistently in their life, they're still making a consistent, ongoing choice to pursue something that God says should be out of bounds, especially for a Christ follower. I know people like that, more than just the one that I was talking about. I know a lot of people like that, actually. At different points in my Christian walk, I've even been a person like that. And it's interesting, when you talk to a person like that, or when you are a person like that, there's really only a few directions the conversation can go, and eventually, if it keeps going, like the one that I was describing, if the person that you're talking to doesn't walk away, if they don't give up, if they hang in and they keep explaining and you keep responding and they keep explaining and you keep responding, eventually they're going to end up saying, no, 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 you've got it all wrong. You're talking about this, this thing that I'm into, this habit, this vice, this part of my life. You're talking about it like it's a bad thing. It's not. It's a good thing. In fact, I think that if you gave me a chance to explain, you'd see it's even a God thing. Have you run into that? I have. A bunch of times. As, as a buyer and as a seller. I've had people lay that line on me, and sometimes I've been the person slinging that line. And as we get back to Romans this morning, Paul is aware, he's acutely aware, in fact, 
that his presentation over the last five chapters, this eloquent, meticulous presentation of the gospel that he's been crafting, almost invites that line. It almost invites that response. Because he spent the last five chapters, right? And especially the last chapter, especially chapter five, talking about what? Wrap it up in one word. Grace. Paul's been all grace all the time, talking about it, explaining it, celebrating it, rejoicing in it. And now, having done that, he's conscious that if he's not careful to clarify when he does and doesn't mean what grace does and does not imply, it could lead to a fundamental misunderstanding, at least by some, a, a tragically mistaken belief that on this side of the cross, somehow sin doesn't matter anymore. Or that even it somehow become good. Some, Paul is concerned, some readers in his day and our day could walk away from chapter 5 knowing that, that they're saved on the one hand and still sinning their favorite sin on the other, saying to themselves as they do, this is okay. God must want it that way. God made me this way. God is okay with me this way. God's carved out space to let me be this way. He doesn't look at me or at sin the same way. Or one of a dozen other rationalizations. And we know because we've encountered them, we've maybe even used them, we know Paul wasn't worried for nothing. We've seen it. We've said it. When we get to chapter 7, I, I wonder if Paul didn't use rationalizations like that a few times in his life. Some of those lines, some of those arguments. Whether he did or not, this morning Paul's going after them. The arguments, the defense of sin in a Christian's life. He's going to come against them, all of them. For his own, for his own sake, maybe. For his readers in Rome, definitely. And for you and I, equally for you and I just as much, that we might know the truth about our lives in Jesus. That we might know. K-N-O-W, know, is going to be an important word this morning. Keyword as we dig into this passage. Know, K-N-O-W, know, shows up three times in the ten verses that we're going to look at. Verse 3, Paul says, don't you know? Verse 6, he says, knowing this. Verse 9, he says, knowing that. All three have to do with knowing what's true for us as believers in Jesus. Not what might be true, but what is true. What's always true all the time when we know Jesus. And those three knowing verses give us three quarters of our outline this morning. Before we even get to that part, Paul's going to start off just, just telling us, just laying out, this is what's true. He's going to give us a heap and helping dose of reality. And that's point number one on our outline. He's going to tell us what's real, what's true. Point number one on your outline, reality. Point number two, he's going to tell us why that's true. And that's going to have three parts. So bullet one is reality. Sorry we don't have slides today. Bullet number one is reality. Bullet number two is why that's reality. And, and that's going to have three sub-bullets. Identity, 2A. History, 2B. Superiority, 
to see. It'll make more sense when we go. Let's dive in. Like we said a moment ago, Paul spent a lot of this letter, and especially the last section of the letter, speaking eloquently, profoundly, compellingly about grace. The means by which we are saved, the only way we could be saved. Saved by grace through faith. Paul's been saying it. He's been celebrating it. Saved by grace through faith. All to the glory of God. Now back up to chapter 5, verse 20. We're not going to review the whole chapter. Just a couple verses will refresh us. Just a couple verses will remind us how we're not saved by the law or by anything else. How we're saved by grace and grace alone. The law entered, verse 20, that the offense might abound. All the law did was prove that we can't keep the law. The only thing the law contributed to our salvation was making clear our need for a Savior. It proved we couldn't earn forgiveness. It proved we needed grace. And we found grace. Going quick because this is a review. We found grace. More accurately, grace found us in the person of Jesus Christ. And where sin abounded, still verse 20, grace abounded much more. So that as sin reigned in death, verse 21, even so, grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Everything Paul's been talking about, right? But Paul knows all this talk about grace, God's riches at Christ's expense. His emphasis on God lavishing us with this undeserved forgiveness, with this unearned righteousness, could easily provoke the question we read in chapter 6, verse 1. What shall we say then? How do we respond, Paul, to this discussion of grace? Shall we continue in sin that grace may, be, uh, that grace may abound? Paul's doing it again. He's anticipating what his reader might say. He's, he's anticipating how the church in Rome might respond to everything he's just said. And he knows sooner or later someone is going to ask, if grace was God's plan all along, if God always intended to do for us what we couldn't do for ourselves, if God wanted to be glorified by sending Christ to pay a debt that he didn't owe because we owed a debt we couldn't pay, if from the beginning... God had the cross in mind as the means to which he was going to put his love on display. How is sin not good? If grace glorifies God and sin makes grace necessary, how is sin not good? Why not sin more? So that God can lavish grace more and glorify his name more. Doesn't that make sense? Paul's response Verse 2, no. <laughs> That's actually a really dopey idea. Okay, New King James is more restrained. Certainly not. King James classic, heaven forbid. I think my version is closer to how Paul really felt. Now that you've been saved by grace, you want to ask God for more grace. You've been saved by grace, you want to ask God for more grace, and your explanation, your, your rationalization, so he'll look good. No. <laughs> no, that's not how it works. No, not ever, not once. No. Why not, Paul? Paul, don't just tell me I'm wrong. Tell me why I'm wrong. Oh, he's going to. <laughs> before we finish the verse, in fact. But, but before he does, let me hit pause. Let me, let me just hit pause and point something out. The specific 
question Paul is responding to, the specific heresy he's anticipating and refuting, is called antinomianism. And if you go to McDonald's and you tell them that word, they'll give you a medium Coke for just a dollar. <laughs> antinomianism is the mistaken belief, the false belief that if grace is good, then sin is good. Because if grace is good, then more grace, more better. More sin demands more grace, which means more glory for God. And at different times in church history, people have bought this. At different times, not just in Paul's day, at different points in church history, people have believed this, they've argued this, because if it's true, then sin is good, and who doesn't want sin to be good? It's a very appealing idea. You remember reading about Rasputin in school? Yeah, me neither. <laughs> Rasputin was the power behind the throne of Nicholas II, the last czar of Russia, until Putin. So Rasputin, he's notorious, accused of all kinds of rape and murder, and, and what he did or didn't do, no one really knows. But what he wrote... What he wrote, what he argued, was that it was the Christian's duty to sin. His logic, only by sinning, like really big sins, could we really plumb the depths of the joy of repentance. Only by sinning huge sins would we ever really appreciate grace. Yeah, that's nuts. And you've probably never encountered anyone who subscribed to that particular belief, who, who bought into that particular, that specific false teaching. Me neither. But notice how Paul responds. Verse 2, how shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? Paul's responding to antinomianism because he wants to get a medium Coke for a dollar at McDonald's. But how he responds is not specific, it's general. How he just responded, how shall we who died to sin live any longer in it, that defeats any argument for sin in the life of a believer. Not just antinomianism, any rationalization, any explanation a Christian might have for continuing in sin. Again, the idea of, of continuing in sin specifically so God can pour out more grace probably never occurred to you. In 20 years, I've never sat across from someone in counseling that used that logic, logic, to justify what they were into. But I've had lots of people try to justify lots of sin, lots of other ways. And what Paul says in verse 2 defeats all of them. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it Game, set, match. Whatever pro-sin argument you thought you had, Paul just said, uh-uh. No, you don't. This is the reality. Okay, end of pause, hit play. This is the reality Paul is asserting. First point on our outline. And it's really a twofer. It's two for the price of one. He's telling us, first of all, on the way to getting where he's going, he's telling us sin is real. Hasn't been redefined, reimagined, done away with. It's a real concept that really exists. And part B, it's still really bad for anyone, but especially for a Christian. Sin is real, and sin really has no place in our lives. God doesn't want it for us, hasn't carved out an exemption for it. He's not just as happy to forgive it as if we'd never done it. 
He hasn't stopped caring about sin because He loves us. He sent His Son to remove sin from us and to remove us from sin. That's the reality. God sent His Son to remove sin from us and to remove us from sin. Doesn't feel that way. Some would say. We might say. Okay, I'll talk about me. I say sometimes I don't feel dead to sin. Doesn't feel like that's true, but it is true, Paul is saying. It's reality. It's true. And here's why it's true. Paul's sliding from point one to point two now. Why is it true? Verse three, do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death. That's the first of the three no statements. And that's the next point on our outline. You can't be a Christian, Paul says, and think it's okay to go on sinning. Why not? You should know why not. Verse 3, you should know your identity is in Christ. That's what baptism means. That's what Paul's talking about. Just had our summer baptism a few weeks ago before you know, the whole world turned to pumpkin spice. So, so the concept of baptism is familiar. We've talked about recently how it's a picture of our identification with Jesus. We go underwater, we're buried with Christ, we come up, we're resurrected in Christ, a new creation in Christ. In being baptized, we're saying, we're declaring, I belong to Christ. I've been joined to Christ. I'm in Christ. When we're baptized, we're saying, I want to identify with Christ. It's probably the most important aspect of baptism, identification. It's the idea that we see again and again when the Bible talks about baptism. 1 Corinthians 10.2, Paul talks about the Israelites being baptized unto Moses. From the time that they went through the Red Sea, that's the baptism Paul's talking about, they identified with Moses. There was no question. He was their leader. They were following him. Galatians 3.27, Paul says, okay, by, by the same token, if you were baptized into Christ, you've put on Christ. You've declared your unity with him. You're saying, no question, he's my leader. So how does continuing in sin, deciding it's okay to sin, how would that work? Because the thing about sin, it'd go completely against who Jesus is and who we've said we are in being baptized into him. We understand. We're on the same page, I think. Baptism doesn't save us. Baptism doesn't really change us. We got wet. But at baptism, we declared we were changed. At baptism, we proclaimed we are saved. At baptism, we declared by our actions, going down in and coming up out of the water, we were forever joined with the one who saved us. Because in a very real sense, we participated in his death and his resurrection. That's how we were saved. What happened to Jesus happened to us. We were buried with him, verse 4, through baptism into death, 
that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. He died for my sin, so I die to my sin. He rose again in resurrection life. I'm resurrected with him to share in his life. So how does continuing in sin make sense? I heard a, ba- a, a pastor say once, burial places a seal on death. I didn't know what he meant at the time, but I don't know, 50, 60 funerals later, it makes sense to me now. A lot of funerals, a lot of memorial services, people show up numb. Because they've been, they've been calling, writing, arranging, planning, traveling. They haven't had time to process. But a lot of times there, there comes this moment when the service is ended. The body's lowered, the, the urn is handed. The service is ended and reality just, just hits. It, it just washes in like a tidal wave. And, and you, can, you can see it. People saying, okay, this is real, isn't it? This, this is my life now. Baptism is intended to be that kind of discontinuity. But instead of saying, well, I'm not going to be able to call my mom on the phone anymore, but at least she's with Jesus, baptism should bring the realization, I'm not going to enjoy sin the same way anymore. It's not going to be a part of my life in the same way anymore, but I'm with Jesus. Just like burial, baptism marks the end of the old life and the beginning, the the resurrection to a new life. A life we get to spend, verse 4, walking with Christ. A life we get to spend indwelt by the Spirit. A life we get to spend identifying with Him. For if we've been united together in the likeness of His death, verse 5, and we have, right? Certainly, we also shall be united together in the likeness of his resurrection. Sounds like Paul's repeating himself, and he kind of is, but he's doing the thing where he repeats himself, and then he amplifies it. He repeats himself, but then he, he puts a little extra, extra English on it. Turns out that phrase, united together, comes from the world of botany, from the world of plants. And it's like this. You ever been out in the woods and you see two trees growing so closely together, they've actually grown into each other? They've pushed against each other until they're actually grafted together. It's like that, Paul is saying. You and me and Jesus, it's like that. Christ and Christ follower should push into each other, should be closely identified with each other, so much so impossible to pry apart, impossible to tell them apart. If, if you're not a plant person, different metaphor. I made scrambled eggs this morning. Mixed some eggs, threw in some cheese, because I'm that kind of guy, cooked them up. And cooking them up, the egg and the cheese cooked up together. Once I did, it was impossible to separate. You can't go into the scrambled eggs and pull the cheese back out. It's not like oil and water where you take it off the heat and they run away and they go to their corners. When I was done, it was impossible to tell where the cheese stopped and the egg began. So too with us in Christ. When we were crucified with Christ, we put on Christ. 
we said, I want to identify with Christ. We should be so close together, you shouldn't be able to tell us apart. Which means the life that we get to live in him today is not a life of sin, because his life isn't a life of sin. The life we get to live today is his resurrection life that has nothing to do with sin. It's free from sin, and it's all about service. Jesus became sin, but that's done with. Today, Jesus lives to make intercession. So too, you and I have been freed from sin, and we get to serve. I've decided, we sing, to follow Jesus. Another way of expressing that, I've decided to identify with Jesus. I've decided to identify with Jesus. What's the next line? No turning back. No turning back. Why would we? More to the point, verse 6, how could we? Knowing this, here's the second thing to know, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin. The thing to know, the thing Paul would have us notice in this verse, everything he's talking about is in the past tense. He's telling us our old selves, the people that we were before Jesus, our history. There it is. Next point on your outline. Galatians 2.20, Paul says the same thing. Also speaking in the past tense. I have been, he says, crucified with Christ. Past tense, finished event. Completed forever, over and done with. And because it is, because that's our history, then today it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. I remember riding around in a car with a Calvary pastor. We were at a conference. A bunch of us said, hey, let's go to lunch. We had just piled in whatever cars were there. Whoever, and so I end up with, with, in a car riding around with a guy who just happened to be in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. And I went complete fanboy. <laughs> Completely undignified. What was it like to be at that festival? To, to play with that person, to, to jam with that band. and It was Richie Fury from the Buffalo Springfield and other bands. Richie just looks at me, and, and, and he's like, dude, what is your problem? <laughs> Eventually, we got to be friends, but, but at, the, at this time, we didn't know each other. He's just looking at me, and he asks me, and I, and I remember this clearly. He looks at me, and he asks me, why do you want to talk to that guy? That guy's dead. I thought that was like, you know, just a Jesus juke. I thought he didn't want to talk about it, that he, this was just his way of being humble or something. He was actually laying some real spiritual truth on me. You can't be alive and dead at the same time. I mean, that makes sense, right? If you see me crossing the street at Central and Hillside and just get flattened by a car, you're not going to expect to see me in the pulpit next Sunday can't be alive and dead at the same time. Life can't coexist with death. We get confused sometimes. We try to mingle and mash them up together. We say things like, we died to sin, I've been crucified with Christ, and then we try to, 
we try to make that into something that it's not. We say, I'm, I, 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 I've been crucified with Christ, and we think, well, I'm a Christian now, I shouldn't sin. Paul didn't say we should die to sin. He said we did die to sin. So that can't be it. When Paul said we died to sin, he, he can't be saying we shouldn't sin. Well, now that I'm a Christian, eventually I won't sin. That's another way to rephrase what Paul is talking about here. I died to sin, so eventually I'll be dead to sin. That's not what he said. He doesn't say we will die to sin. He said we did die to sin. So that doesn't work. Now that I'm a Christian, I promise on my honor to not sin. Okay, A, liar. B, also not what Paul is saying. I promise not to sin. Subject of that sentence, me. It's not about me. Paul says our old man was crucified with him. Who did the heavy lifting? Jesus. Our old man was crucified with him that our body of sin might be done away with. Paul's not talking about something we will do. He's talking about something Christ has done. One more. Oh, well, what Paul means when he says, I've been crucified with Christ, he's saying, my sins are forgiven. thing is, that's true, but Paul's already said that like six different ways. Chapters 1 through 5 were all about that. He's moving on now. He's talking about something different now. He's talking about something that follows from that. He's telling us in chapter 6, and especially here in verse 6, the people we were, the people we used to be, are dead. They're history. Read verse 6 at face value. What does it say? It says, what happened to Jesus happened to us. He died, we died. He rose, we rose in him. And when we did, our old lives ended and new lives began. Lives free from sin's power, lives liberated from sin's tyranny. For he who has died, that's us, verse 7, for he who has died has been freed from sin. Sin, sin. sin still exists. Paul's not blind. And our flesh still finds it attractive. We like it. But it no longer has power. We don't give it. Sin still, sin still exists, but we're no longer its slaves. We're, we're no longer its subjects. Analogy. When the U.S. and the Allies defeated Japan in World War II, some Japanese forces in outlying areas, especially on some of the remote islands that Japan had occupied, continued to hold out, continued to fortify positions, continued to fight. And the U.S. and its allies suffered losses even after the war was over. But those, and here's the thing, though. Those holdouts, those, those, those guerrilla forces, they were never going to take back Tokyo. They were never going to push aside the allies, push General MacArthur aside and put Emperor Hirohito back in power. It was never going to happen. And in much the same way, our, our flesh can hold out, our flesh can resist. It can occupy and fortify space in our hearts it can build encampments and, and surround it with barbed wire. And, and listen, our flesh can do real damage. But it cannot undo what Christ has done. And our right response, verse 8, 
is to stop collaborating with the enemy. Our right response is to stop resisting Jesus, stop rebelling against him, and cooperate with him. If we died with Christ, verse 8, and we did, we believe that we shall also live with him, and we do. Knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more. Death no longer has dominion over him and should not have dominion over us, is Paul's point. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life that he lives, he lives to God, so too shall we. What's true for Christ, Paul says, he says it again, what's true for Christ should be true, is true, not should be true, is true, is true for you and me who are in Christ. That should be true, that will be true, is right now, here today, true. And his relationship with sin should be, is our relationship with sin. It's one of superiority. Final point. Our relationship with sin is the same as Jesus's. One of complete and utter superiority. Jesus died once for all. It's a phrase that shows up a lot in Hebrews, lending support to the idea that maybe Paul wrote Hebrews. Whether that's true or not, what it means there and here is that Christ's death was de- decisive, effective, comprehensive. When he rose, there was nothing left to do, nothing left to accomplish, nothing left to prove. He had triumphed completely, utterly over sin and death. And in him, so have we. Jesus proved his superiority over sin. And so should we. We have it. We should prove it. And you think you know where this is going now. This is the point where you're ready for me to pivot to Jesus died once for all, so start acting like it. Jesus died to sin and live for God, so do that. Start living for God. Put away your porn. Get control of your anger. Quit trying to lift yourself up by putting other people down. Stop relying on gossip for your self-esteem. Get real about all the stuff you're coveting and all the ways you think God is ripping you off. Be done with your sin. Live for him. You've heard that message. I've reached that message. That's not Paul's message, though. Not, not, Not here, at least. Not now. What Paul is saying to us in this passage... Saying to us, listen to his tone. He's really, he's he's pleading with us, isn't he? He's saying, please, know what's true. Please, understand who you are in Christ. Because he knows we don't. Not really. And because we don't, we stumble. And, And we more than stumble. And we justify and we rationalize our more than stumbles. We look and we say, well, this just must be what it is. And God must understand. Maybe God even wants it this way. We see sins in our lives, and instead of regarding them correctly as as an echo of our past, as an anomaly, something that's inconsistent with our identity, part of an old life that's now history, Something that we have, over which we have complete superiority, we accommodate it. We come up with a whole new theology, a theory that explains it, that excuses it, makes room for it. 
Instead of living, leaving our sin out in remote caves, we invited in to dine in the emperor's dining room. Instead of accepting its unconditional surrender, we reward it with a seat in Congress. We, we see we're still tempted to sin. We still stumble into sin, and we give up. Give up, give in, roll over, surrender. Because we don't really believe what we just read, that we've been freed from sin. And Paul's heart in this passage is that we would know better. That we would know the truth and believe the truth and be set free by the truth. Be set free by the truth that we've been set free. Knowledge is power, right? Knowing that we're freed from sin is the key to having power over sin. It's the first step in exercising the power to not sin. But too often, instead of embracing that knowledge, instead of taking that and running with it, we, we just stare at our failure. Whether it's the last time we stumbled or it's the old lives where we, where we wallowed, we decide, well, I guess that's who I am. Guess that's who God made me to be. Guess that's who I'll always be. We refer to ourselves as sinners. We're not. We're saints. We remain obsessed with our unworthiness, our unholiness. We begin every prayer flagellating ourselves in self-condemnation. Oh, wretched man that I am. Paul's begging us this morning to please, in the name of Jesus, stop and know what it is to be in Christ. To believe, to embrace, cling to the reality we're dead to sin. What we did, who we were, it's history. We're dead to sin. That's reality. We're alive in Him. That's today. He's begging us because He's convinced if we embrace the idea of being alive in Christ, living for Christ would take care of itself. It would be the natural response. It would be the overflow of our hearts. As we wrap up, teaching, as Rob said at the top of service, teaching through Isaiah on Wednesday nights. There's a passage in Isaiah that you probably know, even if you're not, you know, super Isaiah person. Isaiah 6, in the year King Uzziah died, Isaiah's got a vision of heaven. Or maybe he's transported to heaven. We can argue about that later. But either way, Isaiah says, Isaiah 6, verse 1, I saw the Lord seated on the throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe was filling the temple. Familiar, right? And he goes on, verse 2, to describe the seraphim that are before the throne of God, the angels. They're crying to each other, verse 3. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the posts of heaven were shaken, verse 4. And the room that Isaiah is in, it fills with smoke. And Isaiah says, verse 5, Isaiah says, I heard it, woe is me. He says the only thing he can say. Woe is me. For I am undone. I am a man of unclean lips. And of course he says that. Because it was true. It was the only thing that could be true for Isaiah. 
Contrast that to what we read in Revelation when it's John's turn to be taken up to heaven. Revelation 4, John stands before the same throne. He stares at it. Isaiah can't even describe it. John stares at it and he gives us this, this, this vivid, detailed description. His eyes are wide open. He's staring at the throne. He's staring at the one seated on the throne. And he's beholding the angels and the living creatures all gathered before the throne, all still praising, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. He doesn't flinch. He doesn't blink. He just keeps watching and listening and taking it all in. Never once covering his face. Never once saying, I'm not worthy to be here. Never the once doing anything to make us suspect he's the least bit afraid. He knows he belongs there. Now maybe it's because three chapters earlier Jesus had reminded him. Revelation 1 verse 17, Jesus says, I'm the first and the last. I was dead, but now I live. And I'm alive forevermore. And psst, hey John, so are you. Jesus was reminding John he didn't need to worry about being unholy or unworthy or unclean because he wasn't. Because the work of the cross was complete. His sins were covered in divine blood. His connection to original sin was severed. His sin nature was defeated. He was, we are, redeemed. See, just like Jesus was reminding John, Paul this morning wants to remind us, wants to convince us we don't have to fall down before Jesus. We don't have to hide or cover ourselves in his presence. We don't have to be ashamed. That's just going to make us want to sin more. We get to stand today. We get to stand with the angels, with the living creatures, with the heavenly hosts, praising, gazing upon God's loveliness. We can meet his gaze, even in his holiness, because he's gazing right back at us, seeing perfect righteousness. We get to be what we are. We get to be what Jesus made us to be. Dead to sin. Alive in him. Oh, Jesus, would you help us cling to this truth? We listen to our flesh. We toggle back and forth. It's not sin, it's not sin, it's not sin. Okay, it's, but it's fine. It's sin, but it's okay. Okay, I can't do anything but sin, so I might as well sin. And then it starts all over again. Jesus, deliver us from the voice of our flesh. You've delivered us from sin. Deliver us from its echoes, from its after effects, from its vestiges. Let us gaze upon you with clear eyes. Help us embrace you with open hearts. Help us live for you with reckless abandon. 
teach us jesus what it is to be alive